iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. The Premier League is back and so are we. I'm Tom Clark and joining me as usual on a Monday are Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. And for the first time this season, everyone's favourite top cat, Tony Cascarino. Now, there's loads to discuss, so I'm just going to jump right in. I'm not even going to tell people what's coming up. You're just going to have to stick with us for the whole damn show. Because the standout result of the weekend, I think we can all agree, Newcastle 5, Aston Villa 1. Especially when you consider that preview show that we did last week, chaps, when we talked about them in the kind of same guise. We said, Newcastle, are they going to be able to do it this season? Are they going to be able to keep that intensity? We said, watch out for Villa. They're the team heading towards the top six. Couldn't have been more wrong, could we, really, after that first weekend? Martin Hardy in the Sunday Times, emphatic, dramatic, and with no suggestion that energy levels would drop. That's what he said about that Newcastle performance. Um, Gregor, what did you make of it? I mean, I was gobsmacked, really, to be honest. Uh, I think Newcastle looked... There was no evidence whatsoever, as Martin Hardy said, that there's going to be any drop-off. I know it's one game in, but the thing that you looked at when you saw their their team as well and, and, and the lineup was the sort of greatly improved competition for places. T- Tony referenced this in his column in, in the paper today, in fact. Anthony Gordon, kind of a bit of a stop-start beginning to life at St James's Park, was brilliant, outstanding. And he's got Harvey Barnes waiting on the bench to come on. And he did come on and he scored and set up another goal. You've got Isaac, who was like his typical menace himself. Brilliant, beautiful dink finish. Callum Wilson comes off the bench, scores. Great competition there. Same on, on the wing. And in, mid, in midfield, Tonali was, was the star. Absolutely magnificent. Um, bit of everything. He's got real composure. One of those players who looks like he's got time and space all the time. It's kind of natural. But he's got, he can stick his foot in as well. He can get in the box. And he got a goal as well. So it was like the perfect start. Um, I, I said before, I said in the previous show, that they're, the one area of the team I look at is centre-half. and think the drop-off is, is quite stark to their backups. But everywhere else now. I'd say left-back too. Dan Byrne, they've got um, Matty Target. target yeah. Matty Target. Um, otherwise, they've got uh, Livramento to cover for Trippier. Uh, all the options in midfield they have now and up front, I think they look really well set. Yeah, see this is why me and you are one mind, Gregor, because the next thing in my notes is Tony Collum squad depth. So Tony, over to you. How important is that that Gregor talked about? In terms of when you're at the very top, you know, you've played at the top across various different leagues. How important is that squad depth in terms of sending a message to opponents that we're really here to stay? Well, is it a coincidence Anthony Gordon chases his backside off from the very second the game started with Harvey Barnes breathing down his neck? Mm. No, that's competition. And players know if you don't play to the standard, you're out of sight. You're not going to start. You know, this, this thing about Newcastle, I, I actually argued for Newcastle last week because I said they've got a character of their, of their side. People like Dan Byrne. No nonsense, won't let anybody settle, complacency. I don't feel like that with Newcastle. I think Trippier at right back is a similar, he's a competitor. He wants to get his, his foot in in all different positions. Isaac is a, an incredible talent. He's got Callum Wilson breathing down his neck. I mean, what has Callum Wilson had to do to get into this side? You know, I watched him at Brentford and we'd say eventually won the game last season. And I came away thinking, first half, Isaac was on his own, isolated. The moment you put Callum Wilson alongside him, they were a completely different team. But they've got a bit of a mixture of play as well. Incredible hunger. Um, I was very impressed by 
And, and let's not forget, Aston Villa are a very athletic team with loads and loads of speed in their side. There, are, there could be, as Gregor mentioned, a couple of issues in a couple of positions. I think Newcastle will resolve that. They're mm. benched, said it all. Harley Barnes comes on, Callum Wilson. I know, the young lad, I've seen Lewis Miley play. Young lad hasn't got close to the team yet. He's played pre-season. He's going to be a star at Newcastle. He's an exciting player. So you can add to what, you know, with young lads coming in mm. as well. So do you think, unlike you went on the preview show, but, you know, the, the tone of our chat was maybe that this team, this squad had gone as far as they could. You know, they'd really overperformed getting to the Champions League. Do you actually think that because of the additions they've made, players like, say, Anthony Gordon or some of those players in defence that perhaps Greg is worried about, you actually think they'll go on? They can push on even further because of the nature of the um, atmosphere, if you like, that Eddie Howe has engendered? Yeah, I think it's been smartly done. I love the, some of the buys they've made. Some have not been household names, but are players that have done great jobs for other, you know, for other clubs. Um, I think their midfield is really hard to get through. It's incredible phys- physical condition. They, they stop you. They'll fight you in there. Gamares is a great footballer. He commits a lot of fouls mm. as well. He loves to get it stuck in and just use it. He's a footballer. And you mentioned Tonali. I mean, look, it's his, 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 his debut. But you can see there's a real player there. I just think they're a good mix of players. Um, I'd be surprised if they don't make the top four. And that's just not off of last weekend, because I do uh, this weekend. I think it's more to do with this team already, you can see, over the course of the season, I think they're going to be a better side than they were last year. Whether that equates to the same points, but I do think they're capable of doing that. I'm still not sure about the top four. Because a long old season. Well, this is this is them. Full you're strength. telling me you're not getting carried away after this one is... game. <laughs> well, Sorry about that. We had an agreement. Get carried away. That's the whole point <laughs> of this show. Come on. This is them at full strength. We're seeing you know all the competition we've talk, spoken about, but they've got so many more games this this year. Yeah. Fighting on new fronts. Um, I'm not getting overexcited, by the way, Gregor. I just think that this is pretty obvious that this is a very good side. Yeah. The, the thing they've done so well is every big every signing they've made has been. A huge upgrade on what they've had before, and made and been really impactful. And like, we've seen so many clubs down the years who spent money badly. What they are doing is, every signing is like, into the team, massive step up. It's that's, the gold, that's it's the Goldilocks philosophy. They've done it right. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right in terms of their. <laughs> it's recruitment. not too starry either. It's not. There's not like, you know, Isaac came in and you thought you knew we'd seen him play for Sweden. You think good player, good striker, but he's been better than anyone expected. I think. And I think yeah. the same could be true of Tonelli. Gomari is probably the same as true of him. Every player, Botman, like other teams wanted him as well, but they've all exceeded expectations. Like if, as, as long as they keep doing that. No, it's excellent recruitment. And I, I know a lot of Newcastle fans who were worried that they hadn't spent. We've got all this money, why aren't we spending it? But in fact, as, as has been proven, you'd, if you just throw money at a team, it doesn't necessarily... Mm-hmm. Like Man City, it's not just about the money, it's about the coaching and identifying who fits in. And I think they've shown that behind the scenes, they're quite good at being restrained in terms of splashing the cash, but when they do, it looks good. And, you know, Eddie Howe clearly knew someone like Isaac would have... I think we could all tell he was, going, he was only going to really improve. There were signs that last season that he could be fantastic. I think. And if my fantasy team wasn't called high moral ground, I would have put, I'd have put Isaac in it, but I couldn't. That's on I'm, brand, I'm, I'm, I'm high moral ground. And so um, I think there's that sense of what they've done is they've worked out what's the point of replacing something that's, you know, that's functioning well, but how can we make what we've got just that bit better? Don't unbalance it with too many new faces, a la Forest. You just... You just hit the right note. And as a team with a balance, they were very, very impressive. And also, it is something when you, when you spend quite a bit of dosh on someone like Tonali, who left his boyhood club, I mean, to go to Newcastle, leaving the club that you are supposedly really happy at. And yet he's given such a great welcome and hits the ground running. I mean, that's slightly fairy tale for them. Just, just on that point, it's interesting to think, isn't it? We talk so much about transfers and when they're done. And we're going to come to some of the transfers that have happened recently. That was a deal that was done early in the window. So you talk about some of those factors that might have been at play, say, if he just arrived the week before. Tony, how big a deal is it when you're coming to a new league to get in and have a good pre-season with a load of people so that you can hit the ground running, running like Alison said? Yeah, well, I, 
I mean, pre-seasons, and I'm sure Gregor would agree with this. I, I, when I played my best football, I'd had great pre-seasons. And then they weren't too interrupted. Um, you just join, you know you, what you've got to do, go through the process of getting yourself. And I do think pre-seasons are way different than they used to be. We used to come in back, not in tip-top uh, condition. I think the modern-day players are. They all turn up, most of them are not even over two pound over their playing weight. Mm. They're all in great nick, which was never out, was it? Two stone or yeah. what, what well, are we talking? Well, my worst was two stone. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. I was, the, when, uh, I'll tell you a quick one on this one. I came back off holiday. I had a three-month injury. I'd done my knee when I was at Gillingham. I come back to Paddington after being in Spain for two weeks. And they had a big red scales in Paddington train station. I got on the same night that Frank Bruno fought Tim Witherspoon. And I was 16 stone one, the same as Frank Bruno. <laughs> That's a true story. So you nearly considered I a career change. So is that a bad on. season? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, and I remember that, and I remember my coach, Keith Peacock, he saw me and he just looked and his eyes were just like, what on earth have you done? <laughs> well. I had a good holiday, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> Do we think some of the Villa players have had a good holiday then? Or is it is it simply the case that Newcastle were that good? Because, you know, we had Villa had a strong end to the season last season. And a lot of people, and we weren't the only ones on the preview show to talk them up, no. Alison. Do, was it simply a case that Newcastle and St James's was too much for them? Or are there, are there worries? Is there still work to do? Combination of things. I think uh, losing Tyro Mings early in the game. Mm. Again, this is something that Gregor and Tony have probably had. Because occasionally player goes off with a bad injury, an important player goes off with a bad injury early in the game, and the team absorb it perfectly fine and doesn't seem to affect them at all. And it's, it's being wise after the event, perhaps, to suggest that it did affect the balance of the team and the player's psychology. It's a possibility, because I think up until that point, it looked like a reasonably even contest. I also think Villa showed a lot of good stuff. Uh, their finishing wasn't clinical enough, whereas Newcastle's finishing was. Uh, if I was Unai Emery, I mean, he looked pretty cross at the end, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too upset by the scoreline. I'd be thinking, OK, we, we put some things in motion I was working on. They were incisive occasionally and played attractively occasionally. But, you know, Buendia being out as well, I think they really missed him. Uh, McGinn, I, I used to be a huge fan of McGinn. I feel like he's just sort of ought to retire now or something. It just doesn't look like the player he was. But is that really harsh, Gregor? Gregor gave me a look. <laughs> it's the sad Scottish look, isn't it? <laughs> oh, don't, don't call out my boys. No, I mean, McGinn, I think McGinn improved greatly um, when Emery arrived. The thing with Villa is... Did you, I, do you think he had a good game? No. I mean, no, okay. I think the thing with Villa, there's sort of echoes of, of Liverpool for me in, in the way they defend and that... Losing, losing Wendia, Jacob Ramsey's another one who's yeah. out for a while. A lot of it's to do with how they defend high up the pitch. And so if you think you lose, lose uh, Mings as well, the thing is they play a, try and play a really high line and when it works, they, you know, they're, they're lauded. But when it doesn't, they look like foolhardy. And it didn't work. Mm. You know, but they, they were opened up time and time again in the second half and you saw Barnes run through to score and set up, uh, set up Wilson's as well. Um, they have to, it's quite kind of, Finally calibrated, I think Villa's defensive setup, and when they've lost these players, it obviously affected them. Tony, I want to finish with you on Villa, not not on this game, but again because you weren't with us for the preview show. How how do you view them going into this season? Were you, were you before this game, and even with this game, you know, Alison's saying there's still lots of positives to take despite a big defeat. Would you put yourself in that camp as well? I would say that. I wouldn't change my opinion on Villa because of that defeat. And yes, it was a heavy one. I look at Villa and think there was a lot of... I mean, having Ollie Watkins up front, he's a willing runner, chases the channels, open up space. The RB came in, look, he got a goal and, and, and he looked to live wire. I think there's lots of good things. Um, and I, it's a really weird one because... I think you've hit John McGinn on the head between the two of you because John McGinn, Stephen Gerrard, looked like he was that was the end of his days. Mm. And then Unai Emery came in and he was revitalised, John McGinn. That was a Steven Gerrard performance by him. Understand? He he is a really good player. That he doesn't. For me, I don't see John McGinn being on the fringe of a game, and he was against Newcastle. And they need him. Remember, he's their captain. You know, they need him. There's a lot of respect for John McGinn uh, at Villa. But they'll be. I think they'll be fine. And I think Unai Emery, Unai Emery will find a way of. And that is a dangerous style of high line. 
especially when you've got really quick forwards. And, I mean, is that is? I mean, he gave, on the Tyrone Mins, unfortunate injury. He's two yards strong behind. And Mins is quick. Strong as well, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, and he Crazy. got there and he held his own against. And then one, one of the standout features I think Unai Emery will look at and think, his team didn't fold, but Newcastle didn't want to let him off the, off the Akiva. I think that was a standout feature of the game. And I think they'll be fine, but it was a big, big, big test for them. The last thing they, on them is that they kind of, often last season when they went ahead too, then they sat really deep and they almost played like six at the back. But when they go, you know, they had to chase the game too. Yeah. So it was a kind of perfect storm for them a little bit. So reasons to be hopeful then. I like it. Even despite a 5-1 defeat, let's see if there's more reasons to be hopeful in our next segment. We're going to look at the promoted clubs. I've got a little quote for you. Naive, a rude awakening for little old Luton Town, a long season awaits. Now that is the kind of intro that could only be written by a Scotsman. <laughs> Gregor, you were there to watch Luton's first match in the Premier League against Brighton. Very difficult opposition, of course. But tell us what you thought and why you gave him such a kicking with that intro. Well, I was actually kind of referencing what the, the broad assessment has been of Luton Town and, and then I went on to... <laughs> to, to pull it apart or try to anyway <laughs> <laughs> um, look they, I thought they played okay I thought they played quite well actually and that sounds daft you look at the scoreline you look at the, the dominance Brighton exerted which is commonplace for Brighton against any team um, and you think they, they took a hammer in but they were they were dogged they were pretty well organised and they coped with everything that, that Brighton threw at them for the first 35 minutes I think um, and even when they went behind, they hung in. They hung in, and they were always, always a threat on the counter. They, uh, I, I mentioned a few stats in this. They entered Brighton's final third 36 times, 20, 21 touches in the penalty area, 22 crosses in the game, seven corners, nine attempts at goal. Those are greatly, uh, you know, much higher figures than a lot of teams of Luton's sort of level in the Premier League when they go to the Amex. I've achieved certainly last season um, and as I say they were a threat Carlton Morris and um, Adebayo up front big strong willing runners and channels you know again not many teams go and play two up front and that was the thing that kind of that got Brighton a little bit when they, whenever there was transitions they got the ball forward quickly two wing backs got up I thought they were impressive as well uh, Ryan Giles and Issa Kabori who's on loan from Manchester City really dynamic Lots of balls in the area, so I'm, you know, I came away. I do, yes, they lost four one, but I'm, I wouldn't be too negative. I wouldn't be writing off Luton because of that. I think got Ross Barkley to come in, who could be a little bit of a difference maker for them in terms of kind of creativity rather than just putting balls in the box. Um, and last season they were one of the best, had one of the best defenses in the championship. I know it's a big step up, but there was there was kind of a couple of really bad errors towards the end of the game, which put the game out of sight for them. I think Luton should be quite pleased with their opening 90 minutes. But Gregor, in the you, Premier League. everything you've said, you it's you could have been talking about Blackpool the year they came up. And no one ever, ever stopped saying how positive they were, how sunny they were, how much they tried to play football. And they were entertaining. And at times they did look too good to go down, but they did. I mean, I, they, you can be all the things you've said. You can have the stats you've said but it doesn't mean they're not going to go down. Absolutely. As I say, they were playing a team who, I want to say it's one of the hardest opening fixtures, certainly away games in the Premier League. And what I'm saying is the scoreline didn't entirely reflect the game. And you know, if you watch Match of the Day, they were scathing. Yeah. And it's often the case, because you can pull out loads of chances or like half chances and you go, oh, look, Brighton battered them. But the first question Rob Edwards was asked in the press conference afterwards was, did that feel a little bit harsh? And it didn't feel misplaced. And his answer was yes and no, because yes, we played well, but no, because we shot ourselves in the foot, i.e. We, we gifted them two goals towards the end. To, when they were actually, you know, they pulled a goal back through what was quite a fortunate penalty that they, they got for a handball. Lewis Dunk, I'm not sure what you could do to get out of the way of that, but that's a modern, that ridiculous. That's a modern penalty now. Um, and then they, you thought, hey, hey, they've got a chance here. And straight away, they gifted them the goal. See, all what's said, and you can go through the numbers, but there was a couple of instances in the game, and M. Penzu was one of them. I mean, when he tries to flick it in his own 18-yard box up in the air, come on, you can't. 
You've got to give respect to the Premier League. You're not in the Championship anymore. You were based on being a very hard-working side that gave nothing away. That was Luton in the Championship for me. I saw them a couple of times, and every, every time I come away, I said, there ain't, team, there ain't a team I've seen work harder than them. Because that's what was their, their DNA. Yeah. Now, they did that uh, on, on the weekend, but they gifted easy chances to Premier League teams that are like predators waiting to punish you. And that's exactly how the game panned out. That's why they got beat 4-1. They could have easily been beaten 2-1 in this game and not made them, I think, them errors where sometimes you overplay. You're not Man City. And you don't have to try and do things that Man City can do because these are top-level players, incredibly gifted technically, that are capable. I don't put Luton in that bracket. Mm. Tony, you're talking about defensive errors there. I wanted to quickly ask you about Carlton Morris and Adebayo that Gregor mentioned. What, yeah. what do you make of them, you know, two players that have worked their way up through the pyramid, uh, particularly Carlton Morris? Do, do you think they're, they're good enough? You know, a huge part of staying in the Premier League is not only not making those mistakes that you talked about, but is taking your, your one chance when you get it in a game yeah. against a team like Brighton. Are they, are they good enough, do you think, to keep them in the Premier League? Well, I think they like players or two, don't they? Mm. Which is a bit rare, but they like to keep them close together. They're both going to be a handful physical. Um, Will they get as many chances? Will they have to be more clinical? Yeah, they're going to have to be. You're mm. going to have to take the chances you get. Um, look, pace and power can take you a long way. And Luton are going to have to have that in certain games away from home. Can they do it? I, th I think they both get goals. Will they get more than 10? I doubt it very much. Uh, I think it's very hard when you play as a two, especially at the games being played, when you don't have as much as the, of the ball. Mm. When you do get chances... You're going to have to. You're going to get crumbs yeah. generally. So you might have to sacrifice one of them in the team to put and them now into and again, midfield I, to get the ball more often. I mean, suffer Rob Ed Edwards, who's watched his team, and he's come up saying. But then Steve Cooper did say the same things when he came up with Forest that they wanted after five games. I think they changed their style a bit, Gregor, mm. didn't they? Where they he was like, we can't play like this. Mm. Are Luton going to be the team after five games where you end up putting one of the centre forwards out and playing yeah. one up front? Yeah. And then and that's what Rob Edwards is going to have to decide very quickly. Um, look, we played this way. That's our way that we had success with. Do we now alter that slightly and get an extra body in midfield, which they might have to do? Mm. Why don't, but why, I, I'm slightly baffled why they didn't go to Brighton in that defensive mindset to start with. Yeah, you don't, was, I mean, you don't go, was, you don't no, go away from the, home being gung-ho, do they, you? They were gung-ho. They played, they played five at the back and their midfield three were pretty kind of tight. Focused on ratting yeah. around, and Nakamba was snapping into tackles. Thought you did a good game. Tai Chong looked like he's full of energy, but a little bit kind of I don't know, lacking composure. That's what I mean. I think they just need someone who can put their foot on the ball in the mid in midfield and look up and be a little bit a little bit calmer. But you can't. They definitely weren't gone goal. What they were was good at kind of having a, a low defensive block and then springing forward and causing a threat. And a big part of that is having two up front because yeah. they've got you know, Lewis Dunk probably be playing for England soon, I think he should be. And he had some tough moments against Adebayo and Morris because it doesn't matter how good you are technically when it's a physical battle, it's, you know, the, the, the playing field is, is level. Yeah. Uh, and, and he had a couple of tough moments and often they played off each other. They would hold the ball up and the wing backs would fly forward. I, as I say, I, that's what I wrote this morning. I thought there was a blueprint there for, and you cut out the errors, that's easy to say, yeah. but there's a blueprint there for causing teams trouble. Yeah. Alison, a very quick word on Brighton. In our preview show, you said loads of reasons to be excited. And so it proved. Did I? That's yes. very well remembered. I don't yeah. remember saying that. I remember I must, all your I best must say, I must What's say... the other reasons to be excited? <laughs> <laughs> I must, well, I'm excited waiting for that pen to draw on your face because you're holding it so close to your cheek. Let's see if it happens I'm during the show. I'm expecting there to be <laughs> ink all over you by the time we yeah, finish. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, well, yes. I mean, we we I, I do remember saying it now, and they have actually proved me right, haven't they? You wouldn't know they were a team that have been at the centre of all these transfer stories, and they've had time to get over McAllister. Less time, although I think they knew Caicedo was going. They were just very glad to have got him for twenty pence, and now they're going to sell him for two hundred million. And I'm exaggerating only slightly, <laughs> but um, they they've planned for this, and they they look like. Well, Brecker was there. Did you at any point forget that there were new people? Did you just think this is a seamless machine? It looked like it looked like that they were the team that ended last season. Well, you picked out a star, didn't you, in this morning's paper? The next cab off the rank, if you like. 
Yeah, Dingra, he, he, he spent last season on loan at Union San Gilwe, I think you call it. Uh, Union San Gilwe. Okay. Well, one of the Tony. two. <laughs> when I say Tony Bloom. Tony oh, Bloom's yeah. part of the club, yeah. It's always so, good to have a bit of pronunciation lessons absolutely. on the game podcast. Stick with us, we'll help you out. <laughs> so he apparently posted better numbers than uh, Matoma did there. He scored 11 goals and registered nine assists in 30 games there, 30 league games last season. Um, Ivory Coast winger signed from uh, a club in Denmark a year ago. So it's like, again, on day one of the season, he was the one who was presented with the chance by uh, Mpanzu. Hammered away first time on the volley. Day one of the season, you're seeing potentially the next guy to follow in the footsteps of Matoma and Ciso, Evan Ferguson. Another player who really impressed was um, Mahmoud Dahoud from, from Dortmund. Really classy. Yeah, really well, that classy was an, that's Matoma. another nod to the preview show. We got that right as well, didn't we? Now, we're going to have to move on because there's still so much for us to talk about. Sheffield United, another club back in the big time, but lost 1-0 at home to Crystal Palace. Gregor, you were in Sheffield last week to speak to Paul Heckingbottom before this game. Um, I would say as well, for the second time in a couple of days, wasn't an overly positive piece. There was a bit of a tone in there of, <laughs> watch out, lads. There was a few phrases in there about remaining positive, and this was before they lost their first game. What, what was the mood in the camp like? Obviously, you spoke in the preview show about it being not the ideal preparation. Is that what we saw on Saturday? I mean, unquestionably. It was really strange. I was there on Tuesday and I arrived at 8am and they were just digesting the news that Sander Berg was in Burnley for a medical. Mm. And that's following the loss of Illumin and Dai. Um, I watched training and they had 15 fit outfield players. Four of them had been on loan and like one was on loan at Bradford Park Avenue last season for a period, one was on loan at Barrow, one was on loan at Derby County, one was in Sheffield United's under-21s. They're completely threadbare. It was extraordinary. I, I, I referenced Norwich City the year they came up and everyone laughed at them for not spending any money. But at least they kept hold of all their best players like Max Ahrens and Jamal Lewis, uh, Ben Godfrey, Timo Pukki, the top scorer. They sold the best players. Um, and since that piece has been written, they... they you know, they have signed one or two. Uh, Gustavo Hamer from Coventry, um, a Brazilian midfielder. But they're still playing catch-up massively. And we saw that on Saturday. They played their 20-year-old Willisula. He's He was on one at Derby last season up front. Really highly rated, but if you play in League One last season, you can't start the season with a kid playing centre-forward who, you know, he's only playing because they don't have anyone else. Um, and they've just, they're still just into the bare bones I think they had one shot on target in the you know their opening Premier League game of the season at home Can I ask you a question on this because I don't get this okay we've had the whole week building up last week of Harry Kane and in his final year of his contract and should Tottenham keep him because he's worth so much to them in other ways or should they you know I had all this debate and then Sheffield United in, in that time have sold in die for 10 million quid and he's got the same contract ends next summer and I'm thinking you're selling a player that's your top goal scorer last season that you should be saying you're staying until the end of your contract. Even if they're then losing. Even if, it, if you lose him next year. It doesn't well, matter. £10 million? Pound. Well, they're, they're, I think it can rise to 20 but But that's the owner's decision. This is the thing. It's well, so, that's the it's problem, very, isn't it? Absolutely. He's trying to sell the club. He's been trying to sell the club, as we know, reported last yeah. year about a couple of failed, failed takeovers. He's still trying to sell the club. Um, but that's a decision that's a... A business decision and you know even if you sold one of them and kept one and said all right we're yeah, willing yeah, to yeah. write off potential well, Sandra Berg was a not I couldn't believe that one I was like you've he's a rival to, too a rival team Burnley you got to Burnley and you're so, looking thinking really you, you know if you want to sell one and keep one at the knowledge you, you might lose them for free at the end of the season because it helps you earn another hundred million quid by staying mm. in the Premier League that seems to me like mm. you know a sensible decision <laughs> but they sold them both and Heckingbottom quite clearly is kind of you know, looking around thinking, what, what, what's going on here? So he, he said to me in that piece, you know, we have to, we have to. The other thing is, he said to me, like, they, they, they lost four of their top five chance creators. So the other two were, that was Berg and I, Tommy Doyle and McAtee as well from, mm. from they Same, were four yeah. of their top five chance creators last season. And they were also, a big strength was pressing high and winning the ball back and creating chances, he said. He said they were the second best team in Europe at doing it. 
And so they're, they're also the four players who, who knew how they pressed. And so he's, he's openly admitted saying, we're a completely different team. We'll need a new, whole new identity. And these are things we have to solve in the transfer market and on the training ground. And they haven't got long to do it. Early worries for Sheffield United. Two, two reasons to be a tiny bit less than pessimistic is that the atmosphere was good. The fans will give them a lot of oomph. And afterwards, Roy Hodgson said, and he wasn't being polite, he said, yeah. teams will, will struggle here. There'll be other teams who don't get the points here because they are committed and physical and the fans behind them. It might, I'm not saying they'll stay up, but I'm saying it won't necessarily be a complete season of humiliation if they can maintain that raucousness and physicality at home. Clever from our Roy, though, isn't it? It's a polite way of saying, look what I did. Got, got, got a 1-0 <laughs> win here. I mean, it was it was also classic Roy Hodgson, wasn't it? 1-0 win when people like us had written him off before the start of the season. He Tony, nearly, nearly got in a scrap as well. Yeah, like exactly. Showing, showing he's still well up for it. Tony, I wanted to mention something that you put in your column in the game this morning, talking about Eberiche Eze mm. and the potential for him to replace the, the big gap left by Wilfred Zaha. He was excellent, wasn't he? Yeah, and... I love it when I see players who sort of arrive on the scene and make a name for themselves. And he has, he has done that, Eze. And then it starts a new season. So you start again and you think, what's he going to be like at Sheffield at Bramall Lane today after the season he's had last year, which he was outstanding in for Palace. And it was like continuation, mm. straight away, doing all the things that Roy would want him to do. You know, just getting on that ball, looking for that pass, having enthusiasm in this game. They create a lot of chances, Crystal yeah. Palace, in this game. A lot. You know, I, I, you look at this Crystal Palace team and Patrick Vieira, which he had, and they couldn't create or couldn't score goals for a period. And Roy's walked in. I wonder if Roy's probably thinking now, do you know what? It's the best Palace team I've had. Mm. I weren't in the job and I've come back. I've walked into a side that have actually got more than what I've had in previous Palace teams. Because there's something about Palace that you just feel... They're quite underwhelming as a club. They don't do much business. You know, you never get excited if you're a Palace fan. And, and yet, they've got actually a very good side. Yeah. Elise is a good player. See, I'd be interested to see how Edouard does this year for Crystal Palace because he was, you know, never looked like he'd settled at, at Palace. So there's a lot of good things and two centre-halves are better standouts for them. Yeah. Any listeners out there, Palace fans who are excited, get in touch. Well, the, but I would... the ultras might object to being <laughs> called it's a not fair passionate. Point. Do, you, do you know what I mean? Now you know you've known Roy for years, okay? And it looks like he's he's found the same. Sometimes managers, and I've had this said to me, I've left a club that weren't as you know they were better than the players I've got at this club. But he said that would move. Apparently, you just see what I mean. So Roy's come back, and he probably thinks this is one of the best Palace teams I've had. But that was the job he was given, and that's why. Vieira lost his job because the, the owners knew they had something that could be sort of special and it wasn't clicking. Hmm. So they brought in somebody they knew very well and said, make us click. And what about did. Roy with Max Lowe? Should it be? I thought he took the punch <laughs> quite well. It was a low blow. <laughs> very good. Very good. Pronunciation lessons and cheap gags. That is what you I get felt, when Tony Cascarino's on the pod. I felt it was... Roy's way of getting revenge on the fact that on TNT, on Saturday morning, their new montage was, it was good, but it was, it was, it was based on same old and new. They kept clip, clip to something we're familiar with and then a clip of a new signing. And that when they said same old managers, it was a picture of Roy, which is easy. And you're sort of doing a double take on that, aren't you? We know who Roy is, and he's old. And I felt this was his way of saying, you, you don't call me old. Well, there I you go. I can fight back. Something old, something new. Manchester City, same old, same old. A win at Burnley. The new, t new boys are back in the Premier League. Alison, I just want to come to you on this. We talked in the preview show about Burnley's style of play and Vincent Kompany being very strong in his way of w wanting to play. But I did think it was slightly odd that for all that we've known Burnley in the past under Sean Dyche in the Premier League, Great at set pieces, great solid defending. It looked a bit chaotic, didn't it? Yes, and I, I'm afraid I did think if it had been a Sean Dyche team at its peak, they might have got something, maybe a point from it, because they didn't upset City at all. You can't play City at being City light. You can't. You've got to be something different. And uh, what Burnley used to have was a sense of unashamedly... We don't care if there's not enough possession. We don't care. We don't care if you don't find us attractive. 
we don't care, but they'll come a set piece. We'll defend, we'll defend well and they'll come a set piece and we will surprise you and maybe grab, grab a point. I, I, at no point in that match, I found it very dull actually, at no point in that match did I feel there was going to be something that upset Pep, upset his players. You know, it's, it's the first game of the season. They'd just lost the Community Shield. We all know that doesn't matter statistically. But they were clearly just getting into their groove. They had a very light pre-season city. This is when you have a go at them, I think. You put, you put to bed any ideas you might have about New Burnley and carrying on with the image you created in the championship. And you go for it. But clearly didn't have have what it takes to do that. But that would have been the right thing to do. Disappointed. Can I, can I just Tone? add one bit on this? Yeah. This is quite important. But Sean Dyche's team got beat five 0 every time they played Manchester. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> no, no, that's because. But that was because they uh, Sean Dyche because he had so little resources. He would he admitted occasionally <laughs> that he didn't try and win. You know, he he would almost rest players for that fixture because he saw no point in exerting himself in a game where every points count. Every point counts oh. to avoid relegation to put in the energy against the City team that would probably beat you no matter how you played. It was wrong of him, but that's what he would do. Gregor, disappointed in Burnley at all? I think it's a bit unfair to judge them against Manchester City in the opening game of the season. Yeah, yeah, but Gunno, I'm asking you well, to they judge change, them. They, I don't think they're going to play five at the back. I don't think they'll... I know they did that a bit pre-season and I know that, they, you know, they did for obvious reasons against City. I don't think... I'd be surprised if they did that for the whole season. Um, I think they tried to set up and be, you know, difficult to, to break down and stuff, but they conceded after four minutes and then, you know, it's a tough it's a tough old day against Manchester City after that. So I think we'll know more about Burnley in the coming weeks. Yeah. Erling Haaland in the goals again. Tony, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to come up with something new to say about Erling Haaland because uh, we'll save that for later in the season. Have to keep that one at bay for as long as possible. But I did want to talk to you about Eddie and Ketia, another, another part of your column this morning yeah. that you mentioned. How... You know, significant is that because again, it was something that I wanted to keep referencing the preview show because I always think it's good to show your failings, if you like, as, as pundits before. But we, you know, Gregor and I were talking about Arsenal not having necessarily gone out and got a proper Gabriel Jesus backup and slightly relying on Enketia. But you were impressed by his performance in their win. I've been impressed with him for a long while. I like Eddie Enketia. Whether he's the absolute solution for Arsenal, I think that's still to be decided. I think he's the way he played last year when he was stepped into start games and play, I thought he played his part. I watched him at uh, Tottenham uh, last year and I thought he was fantastic in the game. Caused a lot of problems. Um, I delighted with his attitude because I found it really interesting that Arteta spoke about him and how he played his way into the team after not being in the Community Shield lineup, and he, and, and he basically had said, like, it was all about how he trained this week. That's why he was in it. And Arsenal went quite offensive. You know, if you think of Kai Havertz, and then you had Saka one side, and you got Martinelli, Odegaard attacking, and then you've got Eddie in there. That's a very attack-minded team. Now, we can go, OK, it was Forest, the Arten game of the season. You expect Arsenal to come out with all, excuse the pun guns, blazing, but they did. But I thought Eddie, again, showed there's a real player in Eddie Nketiah. Whether he's good enough to be in a team of Arsenal to win the Premier League. But I do feel there's an unfair bias with him. I think a lot of, even Arsenal fans are uh, not quite good enough yet. He's only 23. Mm. There's still more development in Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think he's, he's, he's underrated for me. I think, it, I think there'd be a lot of clubs if they could get him. Because if you think of the summer, Balogun has been mentioned 50 million to Monaco. Yeah, yeah. I think Eddie's every bit as good as him. I've seen Balogun play. I think Eddie's got every bit as much as him. Yeah, well, I wish I'd trusted my instincts because I had Eddie and Ketty in my fantasy football team until the very last minute, and then I took him out for Darwin Bloody Nunes. That was a great <laughs> What's your decision. Team called? Well, we'll talk about that later. I'm not, <laughs> I also decided not to captain Haaland as well. It was a bit of a shocker of a start. Now, there's plenty more to come on the game podcast. We'll be talking Harry Kane, Moses Caicedo, Tottenham, Chelsea, Liverpool. But up next, we'll be talking to Molly Hudson about the Women's World Cup. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone
Welcome back to the Game Podcast. We are joined now by Molly Hudson, who is down in Australia at the Women's World Cup. England, of course, preparing for their semi-final against the joint host, which is on Wednesday. Molly, how are we feeling? Tired, jaded or ready to bring the trophy home? We are officially in the last stretch, both both me and the England team. Um, it's been a been a long old tournament for the team. Obviously, they were here for the pre-camp, so I think they're into their sixth, potentially seventh week here now. Um, but look, they know they're they're going to play all seven games of this tournament now, having having reached the semi-final stage. And this is by far going to be the biggest game, the biggest um, atmosphere they've ever experienced. Australia is completely falling in love with the Matildas. Um, it's, it's incredible to see a, a country which really doesn't have soccer, as they call it over here, as, as one of their leading sports. Just absolutely love the team, starting to get to know all the players that you know aren't just Sam Kerr, who was very much the poster girl of this tournament. So I think it, it's going to be a massive, massive game. And obviously England will feel as though this is their best ever chance to, to win a World Cup just because of the number of teams that have already gone out. When you think of, you know, the United States, Germany, Brazil, France, all of them are, are already on the plane home. So uh, I think it's a huge opportunity for England. You talk about that expectation, Moll, and I can certainly say it's echoed back here, not just in amongst my friends, but also in the Times office as well. You know that there's an international tournament getting getting the excitement going when you have members of other desks, the features desk, the news desk walking over going, what are we going to do when England win the World Cup? And, you know, me and James and the, the other editors are like, calm down, we've got to get there first. But it does really feel like this is the opportunity England have been waiting for. I wanted to put it back on Australia and ask you, you mentioned there kind of the, the fans getting behind them. Also, you know, we've got a piece going on the website as we speak about Sam Kerr probably making her first start of the tournament. Do you feel there's a little bit of momentum behind Australia that England are going to have to counter? Yeah, I think there's huge momentum, but as if there wasn't enough, just just the way that they won their quarterfinal against France, the longest penalty shootout in the history of a men's or women's World Cup, um, it really is beginning to feel like it's written for them, which is a feeling England will know all too well from the from the Euros last summer when, when the boot was kind of on the other foot, so to speak, and we were the ones that were experiencing that high and that, you know, host nation pressure, but using it to their advantage. And, you know, that's exactly what Australia have done. This is already significantly further than they've ever gone in a World Cup before. And I think they'll feel, with Kerr coming back, it all feels as though it's falling into place, really. But I also think there's a sense from England's point of view that, yes, they've got to a semi-final, but they haven't really played very well yet. And I think... There is a sense that if England can get it right and, and maybe they can do it on Wednesday, let's hope they can, then they can go on and win this because they've got this far without, frankly, being very good for, for much of it. So I think it's going to be an interesting balance. Molly, can I just ask, well, I mean, how loud are the England fans there? Will, will they be able to counter the home support in any way at all? Frankly, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it was quite strange, actually. In, in England's first game against Haiti, which was played in Brisbane, there was a really loud um, England fan base. Obviously, Haiti didn't have a huge amount of fans, but it was really loud. Uh, Serena Beekman actually talked about after that game that it was a little bit like it was a home game and everyone was really pleasantly surprised. But then when England went back to Brisbane to play Nigeria in the round of 16, not only were the Nigerian fans against England, but so too were all of the Aussies because they didn't want to see England progress because they knew England progressing meant a harder opponent for them. So I think basically from from the end of the group stage, the atmosphere has been against England completely. And I actually wrote in my match report um, in the Columbia game, the only sort of sign that you could actually see England fans in the stadium were the flags behind the goal. They are here, but you just can't hear them. Sounds like you need to grab hold of that stadium announcer's microphone, Molly, and get on the pitch with your best Delia Smith impression. Come on, let's be having you to the England fans before this semi-final. Final question, Molly, before you go, because I know that you've got loads of prep to do and we want you fighting fit for that Wednesday semi-final. You mentioned England not performing as they could have done. Lots of different players at different moments, I felt, have had little moments to kind of get them through to the next round. Who do you think is going to be the most important player or couple of players in this semi-final? 
I think it's Kira Walsh because in the Euros final, she won player of the match and it's it's kind of oversimplifying it, but it does feel as though when Kira Walsh plays well, England play well and there was a period where teams suddenly started to notice that and were basically marking her out of the game. Um, and that's something she, she's having to face now just because of the calibre of player that she is. Now Lauren James is suspended and England are now playing a back three. And I'm not sure the back three really suits Walsh because it means the midfield is quite crowded. Um, but England are having to play the back three and I think they'll stick with it just because of the, the defence, which is frankly a weak area for England. So she's going to have to try and get on the ball, dictate play, but also really maintain her kind of... Yeah, composure and, and discipline in there because she's going to have to cover for the for the wing backs when they go forward because Australia just ripped England apart on the counter when they played them in April, uh, ended Beekman's 30-game unbeaten streak. The only team that have beaten England, so it feels kind of written that this is England's second chance. They know what doesn't work against Australia. Now they need to find out what does. Pressure on Kira Walsh, pressure on England, and a little bit of pressure on Molly Hudson as well, just to make sure she brings that trophy home. Molly, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'll speak again on Thursday after that semi-final. Thank you. Hopefully it's after a win. Molly Hudson there from Australia with Eng the latest on England's efforts in the Women's World Cup. Now we're coming to the end of the show, and it's the big one. Already? Already. Can you believe it, Alison? <laughs> we're nearly at the end of the show, but there's still loads for us to discuss, because Harry Kane has left the Premier League. Finally, I never thought it would happen. I can't believe this day has come. He's joined Bayern Munich, he's left Tottenham. Lots of different areas I want to cover here, but I'm going to start with you, Alison, because you were at Brentford to watch a Harry Kane-less Tottenham, mm. as they now be known, for at least the next <laughs> six months, I'm sure. Draw 2-2. What did you make of their performance? What was Ange Postacoglu like? How did they seem in the post-Harry Kane era? A very peculiar, is what I'd say. Um, I, well, first of all, we've spoken about how you rise to the occasion when you're needed so far on the show and this was a moment for Richarlison to say uh, actually you, you don't need to worry anybody I've been here all along maybe I've been a bit quiet because I was in the shadow of Harry Kane but actually I'm a bit of a superstar number nine and uh, whilst you've got someone like Eddie Nketias telling his manager pick me pick me and then doing pretty well when he's picked. Richarlison, I, I actually forgot he was on the pitch in the first half, and I wasn't the only one. Second half, he clearly had a few words from his no-nonsense manager at halftime, and he did look a bit more interested and made a few runs and had the ball at his feet a couple of times. But, oh, my word, there is no comparison between him and Harry Kane. And it had, it had a knock-on effect as well, so I think that meant that Son looked lost because they had no one to feed because there, was, there seemed to be no understanding between the pair of them. Madison tried to find him. Um, run didn't quite click, so nothing really came of that. Uh, so I think they've got a problem there if they're going to try and replicate what they had. They're going to have to play differently, I think, and if they don't get in an amazing striker, which they won't, they need, they need to think differently altogether about how they set up because they cannot pretend that Richarlison is anything like Harry Kane. Even just from a sort of persona point of view, I mean, Harry Kane did occasionally have games where he wasn't amazing. They were, they were few and far between. But even in games where he wasn't effective, you saw the effort he put in and the way he felt about the team and he tried to be involved and he would even shift position to try and make sure he could have an impact on the match. If, if it's not working for a Charleston, he just sort of stands around looking a bit bored. I mean, they couldn't be more different. So from that point of view, it really was, in that sense, it was obvious the game was missing a key personality, but there was so much else going on in that game. You, you therefore didn't need to worry about it because it was such a busy, busy, crazy, crazy day. And I can go on about that if you want, but maybe I'll let someone else talk about game I'm, first. I'm, I'm going to jump in just before Gregor reminds me that last this time last season I said Richarlison was going to be brilliant. At <laughs> I wasn't going to remind you. Yeah, well, I thought I'd get in there just in case you were. But I mean, it, it, there there is just a quick point to make as well before before coming on the show today. I was speaking to um, another one of my colleagues on the editing desk who's a Tottenham fan, and it slightly fascinates me because it feels like some of those things we talked about in the preview show about Ange Ball and about it being fun 
has gripped them slightly. So there's this yeah. strange, slightly phenomenon at the minute with Tottenham fans where, despite all the things you outlined, Alison, and the fact they've lost their most talismanic player, the most talismanic player in the Premier League for any club, arguably, they seem kind of happy. They're kind of, they're kind of excited about what's next in a slightly unknown type way. All the changes Alison said that we need to see from Tottenham, I think we saw the start of them. They played, I read they played the most, most passes in the opposition's half for 18 months. Basuma was brilliant. Mm. Basuma was like getting on the ball in really tight spaces in midfield when, it, when the easy thing to do would play it sideways or back or keep recycling it and he'd risk it and he'd play it around the corner and he's, he was making things happen. There was like, that was the best game I've seen him in, the, in, in a Spurs shirt. Um, there was encouragement from Madison. I agree, like Richarlison was anonymous and Son and Kulusevski didn't do enough, but we saw the blueprint of what Spurs are going to try and be in the future. And this is the perfect time for Harry Kane to leave. Like, it's closure. It's all the things that you're speaking about. Yeah, Spurs need to change, they need to evolve. That, that was all going to happen anyway. And if, if there's a time for Harry Kane to leave, it might as well be at this kind of juncture mm. where there's a clearly defined sort of change in direction. Mm. Oh, but wouldn't, don't you think Kane would have enjoyed the new regime? Absolutely, but it's been, it's been like so a... it's not that obvious that he should a, have left at this point. No, he should have left years ago. That's a whole other <laughs> question. He's been badly advised. Like, people are making out like this kind of epochal event. Like, they will move on. Like, he's been their best striker for a generation and maybe another generation before they find one that's good. But they'll find someone and there'll be a new star, a new... As Tom said, we've already seen the Spurs fans feeling quite excited about the future and it's the first game of the Harry Kane. I'm going to use a line that a manager once said to me about my performance. And this is what I would say of Richarlison. Is it, do I need to do a warning before I say <laughs> A manager once said to me, you've been outstanding today. He said that at the end of the game. He said, the problem is everyone else is out running. <laughs> Very right? good. That's Richarlison's performance for me in a nutshell. So many times he was static. Now, Alison mentioning it's spot on to say about, you know, everything that Kane does, it does in a game. He inspires, he lifts, he creates problems for other people. He makes other players look better. Which Alison doesn't do any of that. He basically, if he does it, he's, he's a player that, it could cost you your job as a manager. He always needs loving. You know, even when you see him go well and he scores a goal and he's down, he's, you know, you feel like, he feels like he's hard work on a daily basis. I can't prove that. I'm only talking about how I watch him and how I view him as a, as a supporter of football. And, and I would get frustrated as hell. Because there is a talent there. He's a Brazilian centre-forward. You know, he's played in the World Cup in that, in that role. But he has a part of his game that I don't know how long Postacoglu will stay with him in there. Because he's got, his idea, is, is what we just touched on, is... He's been given a chance in the first game, the opening game of the season, to go, right, now lay down a marker. Impress me as a manager to think, I'm not going to leave you out. He did everything opposite to that for me in the game. We'll come back to Harry Kane in a minute, Tony, because I want to ask you about him. Alison, very quickly on Brentford, in terms of talismanic strikers missing, Ivan Tony, we know he'll be missing until January. How did they cope without him? 2-2 draw at home against a team like Tottenham. Reasons to be cheerful for them? Well, they did exactly what I said they were doing last week's show um, Wissa and Mbwemo they they have a great relationship Mbwemo is incredibly he's got everything actually he's, he's, he's fast powerful intelligent he missed a sitter though mm. so I mean I, I, it, no it wasn't quite a sitter it was, it was quite a difficult chance but it was such a beautiful setup. Um, they've got Rico Henry blistering pace they are I, I, I felt they were the proper football team on Sunday. They because you knew you know what you're going to get. The template is set. They play to their strengths. They squeeze every inch of what they've got out of a performance. Um, I thought Thomas Frank was quite restrained by saying he felt that Brentford marginally had the better chances. I felt they were the better team, and you were kind, Gregor, about what you saw from Spurs. And I saw the graphic too, which showed that. Under Postacoglu, they are all further up the pitch. Every single player is individually, they are further up the pitch. They're trying to be more adventurous, play a higher line. They, he likes them to be brave. He tells them to be fearless, go for it. But for much of the match, that was just quite messy. It wasn't entertaining. 
It wasn't enjoyable. The fun stuff was being played by Brentford because on the break, they, they are always exciting to watch and, and in their own way, very brave as well. One thing that I couldn't decide whether it was bold or foolish is asking Emerson Royale to play as an inverted <laughs> right back slash midfielder. And then he smashed the ball in from the edge of the box. And I thought, well, maybe there's half a future there. Exactly. But, but he, lost, he season, also lost possession. To be wrong. I'd he also, also lost possession. I'd also say that that is like my standout hot take from the opening weekend of the season. This is the season of the inverted fullback. You've got Trent at Liverpool, Emerson Royale, James Milner did it for Brighton at 37 years old. Mm. Thomas Partey was asked to do it at Arsenal. And, you know, we know he's a midfielder. Rico Lewis at City. I think Burnley will. So you're talking about more than 25% of the Premier League now are asking fullbacks to step into midfield. I love it. Season game one, Gregor Robertson's making hot takes <laughs> and predictions. Tony, I want to come to Harry Kane. I want to talk to you. You know, you followed his career. You were a striker yourself. You moved abroad in your, late in your career as well. I remember speaking to you as this saga was going on and you said, oh, I just really hope he moves. I really hope he goes and challenges himself. Are you pleased that Kane has made this move? Yeah, because Bayern's an incredible club. It's, one of the, it's the envy of many clubs in Europe. And since Lewandowski left, um, Bayern have struggled. Chopper uh, Motin has been playing their centre-forward at times. Mane didn't work out. Yeah. It's a great opportunity for Kane to go to a club that is at the very top table of football. Yes, they've had a big defeat against Leipzig at the weekend. Over the course of the season... I think Harry will absolutely enjoy it. It was the biggest change in my career going abroad. It was a different outlook. Um, and, you know, I pl- went to a, a club fortunate by circumstances, Marseille, which is a, it's the biggest club in France. I know people will look at PSG. They've got the most money. They're not the biggest club. They've got the most money, OK? And Bayern are the biggest club in Germany that will give him the platform to get loads and loads of goals and go deep in the competition of the Champions League. They've bought him because they really believe, ultimately, that he will make a big difference in the latter stages of the Champions League. And I, I'd be excited. There's a lot of good players at Bayern. You have to be a top player to play there. You know, I've got some real terrific talent. You know, Kimmich is a, a really good footballer. Alfonso Davis is mm. top fullback. There'll be, it'll be an exciting time for Harry to go there. I think he'll love every minute of it. Alison, Tony, very excited then about Kane. He's someone that you've watched, obviously, a lot and you've talked about him a lot on this podcast in terms of how his game has changed over the last couple of years, being that striker to sometimes dropping deep and linking the play. You know, you mentioned his relationship with Son. How, how do you see him going? Because I wonder whether there'll be some Bayern fans who are expecting Tony can make the, made the Lewandowski comparison, the, the goal scorer, the goal getter, whereas we've seen him's game change in recent years to be more provider at times. Which, which do you think is the role he's going to fulfil? Oh, that's or? such a good point because he, on paper, he's the perfect replacement for Lewandowski. Absolute perfect replacement. There's something about the way they run even. They, they look similar. There's something about it that makes it feel like the perfect fit. But I think, I think Kane is more, a more complex and interesting forward than Lewandowski, just slightly. And... I do hope that Kane is allowed to, and I don't think he will because he sort of owned Tottenham and was theirs and there was such a responsibility for him to make the team work that he, he, if, he, if he wants, if he could spend a whole game dropping deep and not really looking like he was a traditional centre forward, he'd be the person just dropping deeper and deeper and, and and those lovely one-touch passing that he had when him and Son's relationship was at its peak is absolutely beautiful. I really hope that Bayern have bought that version of Harry Kane and not just um, a Lewandowski double. Because if he's gone to a new country, a new club, somewhere where he doesn't speak the language, different environment, different sounds, smells, the whole thing, and he's expected to... Well, what he'll probably be is play more like he plays for England, probably, where I don't think Gareth Southgate completely exploits uh, what Kane's talents when he moves deep are and gives him that freedom too. Because there's an insecurity about playing for England, which they don't let players be totally expressive. So I, ho- I, hope, I hope that at Bayern they know they've spent the money on someone who can do more than just be your nominal striker that there's so much more depth to him and encourage him to feel comfortable in doing that otherwise I think he might have a slightly unhappy time 
I think we're all fascinated to see how it works out. To be honest, we could do an entire show on Harry Kane's move to Bayern Munich. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But there's another big transfer that took, well, close to taking place, we believe. Moses Caicedo looks like he's off to Chelsea. £115 million, snatching him back from Liverpool in that tug of war. Um, You can read Martin Samuel online now about what that move means for both clubs. Henry Winter's column later on, by the time you're listening to this, will be online as well. He talks about Brighton's brilliant um, FFP work and transfer model in terms of bringing in players like Caicedo. And that leads me perfectly on to ask you, Gregor Robertson, about a trip to Ecuador in which you went into researching, delving deep into the backstory of Moses Caicedo. But not just him, but the clubs that made him and the people that made him. Yeah. um, I spent a week in Ecuador last month. Uh, I was getting quite worried that there was going to be no transfer for a little while. <laughs> it would have been a kind of an expensive trip with no uh, no real like hook. <laughs> I'm glad p- was a... got some lovely pictures of you. Out there there. Was, yeah, there was, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, no, it was a, it was a, an incredible trip, and I went to Caicedo's uh, hometown, Santo Domingo, um, and uh, most people live in extreme poverty there. He was one of them. I met his first football coach. Uh, a guy called Ivan Guerra, who spotted him playing football on the street at five years old, asked him to join his soccer school, said he was playing bare feet, he used piles of stones for goal, goal posts. The pitch that is the home to the soccer school was like the most humble pitch I've ever seen, just dusty scrub land, hemmed in by houses, untarmacked roads, a really, really humble area. And just makes you realise when you see that what it means for someone to drag himself up from those beginnings and lift his family out of poverty. And, you know, that was the thing he spoke about when he wanted to join Arsenal in January. It's still, everyone I spoke to said that that's been his primary motivation, was to get his mum, his nine siblings, his family, he was the youngest of ten, his family out of those circumstances. And and a big step of that was joining a club called Independiente del Valle um, when he was 14. And... Ecuador is a fascinating place because they call it the country of four worlds because there's the Pacific coast, which is close to where he was from, which is a tropical uh, monsoon climate. There's the Galapagos Islands, which are pretty unique. There's the Amazon jungle and there's the Andean mountains. And IDV, the club he was joining, was in the mountains. So I did the journey the other way. It was kind of equally terrifying and... Uh, fascinating this journey because you, you descend more than 2,000 metres uh, down the side of the Andes and the road's pretty kind of hairy. Mm, <laughs> and this is the, everyone said to me at the club, you know, these players, they arrive when they're kids and they, they've come from a different part of the country and you think, oh, you know, big wows. But it's like the temperature drops, the air's thinner, everything. It's like, it's like moving to a new country and he did that at 14 and made his debut before he was for his 18th birthday. Um, and, yeah, it was just fascinating speaking to his coaches and um, and learning more about that club. I've got a second piece coming out about that club because it's become one of the most sort of remarkable talent factories in South America. Chelsea, this this summer, have signed two players from that, developed by that club. Mm. Kendry Paz, they signed for £17.5 million a few weeks after his 16th birthday. Mm. And they think in Ecuador he could be the best player they've ever produced. So it's pretty extraordinary that this one little club perched in the Andes has produced these two players that Chelsea have signed. And there are many more. Um, Gonzalo Plata, Bournemouth tried to sign this summer before I think Qatar uh, usurped them with a better offer. Um, Piero Hincapi plays for Bayern Leverkusen. Uh, William Pancho, Eintracht Frankfurt. So dotted around Europe now, there are players developed by this one remarkable little club who 15 years ago were in the third tier of Ecuadorian yeah. football. And they're, But they're not just producing players though, are they? Within South America, they're really like causing the, some major upsets in yeah. terms of performance. In 2016, well. they got to the final of the Copa Libertadores, which is the equivalent of the Champions League. And 10 years earlier, they were in the third division. Yeah. And they were taken over by a, a guy called uh, Michel Della, who's an Ecuadorian businessman who's got a fascinating story to, to tell as well. He's got roots in southern Germany, moved to Ecuador, his family moved to Ecuador um, before the outbreak of the Second World War because they were Jews and 
made a huge success of 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 their life in in, in Ecuador. And they, they told me essentially this is a way of giving back to the country that opened its doors to them because a big part of what they're doing is also lifting children out of poverty and giving them an education, giving them three meals a day. A lot of the kids who turn up are malnourished. Mm. And the campus is incredible. There's, 100, there's room for 150 kids between 12 and 18. So to see where Caicedo and many of these players began, lived, trained, went to school, their whole lives were on this one campus, and then go on to... They're also transforming Ecuadorian football. We, we saw how good they were in the World Cup. Yeah. All their youth teams are now populated. About 40% of their, their, the Ecuador national teams are all from Independiente. 12 of... 11, sorry, of Ecuador's World Cup squad came from this one club. So it's like transformed the country's outlook in football. And I think Moises Caicedo making this move will be a kind of hugely positive story back in Ecuador at a time of real trouble. We just, maybe you might have seen in the news uh, a couple of days ago that a pres presidential candidate was, was assassinated. Mm. A lot of trouble, a lot of kind of strife in the country. It's kind of between Colombia and Peru and, and sort of trafficking of drugs. Uh, and it's getting caught up in that. So this is undoubtedly a really big positive story for Ecuador as well. Yeah, it's an amazing story. You can read it all online now, part one and part two of Gregor's adventure in Ecuador, <laughs> learning the Moses Caicedo story. Tony, Alison, I want to finish with you. Very, very quick question. Alison, very quick, very quick. I know it's Liverpool related, but it has to be quick, okay? We're asking readers uh, online at the moment in that Martin Samuel column about the kind of tug of war between Liverpool and Chelsea and what we learned from that draw uh, at Stamford Bridge yesterday, which of the two teams will finish higher in the Premier League? Obviously a very difficult question at this stage in the season, but watching that match and trying to be dispassionate here, who did you think looked like the more rounded team and who do you think might fare better, just based on those 90 minutes? I think Chelsea looked more rounded, but I think Liverpool held more potential. Good, very quick. Tony? Well, the game itself was played with Liverpool dominating the early periods of the game and looking like it was going to go 2-0 quite quickly. And then it panned out over the course of the 90 minutes that maybe Chelsea just edged it. Very difficult to pick who's going to finish after one game. Oh, come on, Tony. No, I can't pick one. <laughs> I can't pick on that. You know, look, the Casado transfer, the game showed how important. Liverpool's, once McAllister was getting closed down and getting rubbed with the ball, mm. and, they, and Fernandez and uh, Conor Gallagher did it really well because at the first part of the game, he was running the show, putting all the strings. And then once they stopped that, Liverpool showed their weakness in which me and Al have talked a lot about, about once they get bypassed their midfield, Liverpool can get in trouble. And I think you'll see that this season. That'll, they'll continue from last year. Yeah. Liverpool hoping to bring in Romeo Lavia, having missed out on Moses Caicedo. But Tom Roddy reporting, as we started this podcast, that Chelsea are still interested in Southampton's Romeo Lavia, the cheeky scamps. Why can't they just share these players? Honestly, you don't need to hoard them like that. Alison Rudd, Gregor Robson, Tony Cascarino, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of The Game Podcast. Uh, if you're sad that we've missed out your team, get in touch with me on Twitter or email me tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk with the subjects you want us to bring up and we'll try to mention it on Thursday when we'll be joined by Gregor, Johnny Northcroft and a new member of The Times Podcast team. See you then. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 